This podcast is recorded on the traditional and unceded territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, Tsleil-Waututh, and Coquitlam peoples. British Columbia, I've seen your mountains high, seen your pretty rainbows and your blue crystal skies, watched your winding rivers as they flow around the bend. To me you're not a stranger, you'll always be a friend. Coming to you from the West Coast, this is Politicos. Today is February 24th, 2022, and this is episode 278. I'm Ian Bushfield. I'm Scott Lundabom. And I'm Stuart Prest. Welcome back, Stuart. It's good to have someone with some actual international relations, political science experience and knowledge on a show that plans to talk about everything from the mundane politics to the perpetually unprecedented international global conflicts we always find ourselves in. Yeah, it is a lot on our plates. It seems like we have a three emergency minimum these days, even if one of the emergencies is technically over, we still have something to talk about there. So I'm looking forward to getting into all of it. And we're not even really going to talk about the overdose crisis today. But thank you to everyone who contributes to this show every or month. COVID. You can join them at patreon.com slash politicoast. Let's do the greatest BC premier bracket super quick this week. You've heard all of these premiers before. Last week, we put up the NDP premiers, the greatest of the greats on that party team. Dave Barrett just crushed John Horgan 57 to 18. I think the case for John Horgan is that he's the only one who has won re-election as an NDP premier, and I think he is now the longest serving NDP premier in history. But his legacy isn't cemented yet, and he's still controversial among many leftists, at least, and people on, I guess, the right. So his legacy is to be seen. Dave Barrett advances. So we're now in the semifinals. We have Morda Cosmos versus Dave Barrett this week. Stuart, have you been following the bracket at all? Any thoughts on these two? I think that Barrett is looking a bit like a, a powerhouse at this point. Morda de Cosmos is a, uh, a romantic figure, if the name tells us anything. He, he's he is, running on name if recognition. If anyone is running on name recognition, then this, I think it is him, and it has clearly carried him a good long way, but I think he may have met his match here, although, of course, we'll have to wait to see how the votes come out. Yeah, I think the other half of the semifinals might end up being the same way, but you can vote for DeCosmos or Barrett at Politicos Pod on our Twitter account or politicos.ca slash bracket and see where everyone is at. Let's jump into the first segment, the budget that... We don't have much to say about the BCNDP dropped their 2022 budget earlier this week. It follows the economic strategy Scott and I talked about last week. There is new funding in this. There's some good news for the province. We're not in as big of a deficit as predicted, as it seems like many provinces have had better revenues than expected. And BC is choosing to spend I like to compare this against Alberta, where I just saw Jason Kenney drop their budget and he's touting a surplus, that they're back to surplus, versus BC, I think, could be there, but we are choosing to spend. So we were considering a $9.7 billion deficit in November that had been upgraded to $1.7 billion, and now it's just going to be $483 million deficit. Nevertheless, in the next two years, we're still going to look at deficits of $4 billion and $3 billion, respectively as the government tries to continue to build out and meet all of the social spending it promised. The big challenge in here is there's nothing big. Also, part of the reason the finances are in decent shape is the property transfer tax revenue has been coming in fast and furious. 
from a very frothy market, and it's probably good that they're not that counting on cow. that to continue. Among the big highlights, the government is touting that the goal is to have $20 a day daycare by the end of 2022, which I can't wait for. That'll save me 400 bucks a month per child, which is serious money. That's largely funded by the federal transfers that have been announced with the Trudeau deal, as well as some increases to spending locally. There's money to reduce EHS wait times on 911, getting more dispatchers and paramedics. There's money for surgical waitlist reduction strategies. And they're going to expand the, as promised in the throne speech, the Ministry of Finnel Rod is being split up with a new Ministry of Land, Water, and Resource Stewardship, which shall ever be known as the Ministry of Land Wars. Never start a Ministry of Land Wars in Asia. What a week for that. Yeah, that felt like a better joke at the start of this week. Jesus. Mm -hmm. There's going to be more money to... Go ahead. On the plus side, it no longer sounds like a Lord of the Rings character. <laughs> it was a pretty bad mouthful. It will be interesting to see how this ministry moves forward because the goal of the government is to really try to work reconciliation into and, cl and climate resiliency and environmental conservation into a holistic strategy. And so cutting off forests and rural development will allow the government to put its focus a little bit better on the different elements of the province's natural resources and I guess rural areas. Of course, the risk is that we could end up with another Ministry of Mental Health and Addictions where it's just kind of subservient to another ministry and seems to struggle to accomplish its goals. Time will tell. There's a, hand, there's a lot of small things in this budget, things like PST is coming off heat pumps and use zero emission vehicles, and they're going to increase the PST on fossil fuel heating equipment, so just incentives towards clean BC, money for year-round wildfire service, money for building back from the floods, extending government care for kids until they turn 27 so they don't age out of care, things that are all, I think, reasonable and viewed well and positively. But not a lot of big headlines or banners, which you know, it turns out no one would have noticed anyway. Yeah. yeah, it's not a good week to be making announcements on anything, really, uh, with all that's going on. But yeah, it's it's a John Horton budget. Like, at this point, you know what you're getting, and that there's not much new words it in it. It does there. reflect how this government has operated, uh, just as you're saying, Scott. And uh, so the issues that have are thorny problems that, that don't seem close to a, a resolution. Uh, most of those will continue to be thorny problems that will not move uh, much closer to a resolution. So if we're looking for uh, a massive investment, say, in social housing, you will look in vain. If you're looking for massive investment in a new strategy to, to combat the, the poison drug crisis, you, you will look in vain for that as well. Some of it is, is hard to uh, evaluate just what a big difference it will make. The sp sprinkling of a million dollars here and there, some of that is going to be uh, significant spending, but it can be a little hard to, to gauge from this point of view. The fact that they are moving ahead on, on daycare, even though they're not at $10 a day, the fact that they're moving towards $20 a day this quickly, that is something I think the government can speak positively about here. And and the money put towards a flood restoration, that that's uh, serious cash as well. Watching how the money is spent and, and how effectively will be uh, a task for, for government watchers, I think. Yeah, I think you hit the nail on the head for a couple things there. Like liberal finance critic Peter Millibar 
was commenting on this budget and he criticized the quote lack of measures to meaningfully address cost of rising housing, gas and groceries and that there's no new funding for mental health and addictions programs. And given that we are still in a state of emergency for or public health emergency for mental health and addictions, the overdose crisis, the poison drug crisis, it's shocking. There's not more there. Like the government, we saw record numbers of deaths last year on top of record numbers of deaths in 2020 due to poison drugs. And at some point we need to take this more seriously. I get it's a difficult problem, but you have to really commit to doing it. If we managed to fight COVID, you can argue over how well we did, but we did fight it. And it seems like we're doing a half-assed effort at saving the lives of people who use drugs. And similarly, I think we could see more on housing here. Like, I think there is some money to increase social housing and to build out more, but it's a, such an intractable and long-standing issue that it's not enough to sit on your hands or go half in on. I guess we'll have to see when David Eby's much telegraphed legislation to screw the cities comes down later this year. I think the the fundamental problem with housing, if you want to trace it back, it does in some ways go back to the fact that for something like 20, 30 years, the former pace of funding for social housing just hasn't been there. And that stems from cutbacks to federal government in the 1990s. Provinces passed that on as well. And so it is any amount of spending that the government is is doing in that area will help to make up some of that shortfall. There's just a certain segment of the market that the market itself won't won't meet, and there are different reasons for for why that is, and we continue to debate it. But to really start to make up that shortfall is going to require a massive investment, and it may be beyond the the scope of a provincial government to really tackle on their own. It would be nice to see them really pushing in in that way, pushing for additional federal involvement on the same sort of scale that we're seeing with. Say, Childcare, where the federal government could exercise uh, a finance-based leadership on a program like that once again. Elsewhere, I saw was from the Center for Policy Alternatives was noting in response to the housing stuff on there that there are models where uh, BC Housing or a different provincial housing agency or some such could set up more of a cross-subsidized bottle that sees a little more market rate housing in their projects, but that gets used to fund the the more affordable units in a, a way that's scalable beyond just what a province can find in a single budget. And it's more self, self-supporting. self And there's way. still no renter's rebate funded in here, which I don't think anyone is expecting anymore, which makes it all the funnier that the NDP put it in their platform twice, I believe. One other fun thing in here is the budget bill actually has to amend the Balanced Budget and Ministerial Accountability Act of BC. This is the law that says you can't run a deficit. And like I said, they're running $483 million this year and $4 billion and $3 billion the next two years. So they, they can't break their own law. So they have to amend that. And it shows that balanced budget laws are a joke in any way. But the other half of this law is one that the opposition is trying to jump on and accuse the government of giving cabinet ministers a 10% raise. As this law includes a weird quirk that if a government runs a deficit, cabinet ministers are supposed to have 10% of their salaries held back as punishment for not keeping budgets under control. And so the NDP is amending 
that away for a few years so that they can run deficits and that their cabinet ministers can keep their full salaries. And this is dumb. Like, I get why the I'm fine with the NDP doing this, actually. I think politicians deserve to be paid reasonable. And I just, the politicking around like deficits, it's so frustrating. Mm -hmm. It is. Yeah, go ahead, Scott. So, in the abstract, I can see the argument for pay for performance. Where it gets a little tricky is how do you define performance? And clearly, the last government saw the the surplus or deficit as the key metric on that front, which as we've gone through a pandemic that's required a fair bit of spending, maybe not the best metric, but you can see a rationale for it. Yeah, I think it is one of those things I'd be surprised if departments don't find ways to, to deliver on whatever top line numbers they, they need to, to get cabinet ministers their salary. It is an interestingly, would you call it... Uh, neoliberal approach. It is this idea of a financial incentive or disincentive for an individual. It seems something sort of the opposite kind of mechanism that you would associate with CEO pay, where they get a bonus for reaching whatever share prices. It's the opposite here. So it is an individualizing of responsibility, which does push against the the tradition in Canadian cabinets of, of cabinet solidarity and shared responsibility that effectively cabinet operates with one voice and, and shares responsibility. Here it is more of a devil take the hindmost kind of approach. Well, I, I think in this case, it's all of cabinet either gets the pay cut or none of them do. It's not about how each uh, ministry does on their individual budget. The theory is there, but the, the execution might not be successful it almost just begs the question of like why doesn't the ndp just repeal entire balanced budget law take the hit this year but i and then just aim to get back to balance if that's what their goal is but they don't want to we have the budget here we'll throw the links in the show notes next up let's we're we're no longer in an emergency in canada at least the like official emergencies act domestic emergency yeah. anyway trudeau revoked the emergencies act on wednesday after the house of commons approved it on monday and the senate started debating it convenient for him but that's good there was starting to be a sense out there that okay the truckers were cleared out what on the weekend i think i almost tracked the time the truckers been cleared out for a couple of days Nobody seems to be rushing back into downtown Ottawa to reoccupy it. The, the precipitating event for the emergency has ended. Why is the emergency act still in place? And that was, and that steady drumbeat had been raising in intensity in the days leading up to that. So there, there was definitely starting to be political pressure on him. And I, don't know, I think he maybe waited a day longer than needed, but, uh, it did seem to be increasingly untenable to maintain it long term. I think it, it is a strange sort of political moment where I saw was it Don Martin on CTV called it a flip flop on the part of the Trudeau government. It's, it's a strange sort of thing to criticize the government for is to say that they are not holding on to these extra constitutional emergency powers of the kind that uh, are the closest thing we have now to the War Measures Act. And so criticizing a government for not holding on to those powers for a second longer than they judge it necessary is a, a strange line of, of critique. I would think 
the sooner a government relinquishes those powers, the better. And uh, the fact that the streets in Ottawa are currently relatively clear is a good indicator that in, in some measure, the emergency has uh, subsided. I think it's an important pre- precedent, and I think it's an important, from a political standpoint, important thing for the Trudeau government to do, to make it clear that they are using these powers in the utmost uh, emergency type situation and and no more than that. It's a, it's a bit of political insulation there. I don't it's mischief is managed and they put that put that power they put the powers back in the box it's better than holding on to them i'd say yeah the ndp supported it like conditionally that they would revisit that if they needed to it was a very we realize we're the historic party that would not support this but we're currently in the political situation where we're going to support you and it had been hinted but not confirmed that this could be seen as a confidence vote. And so that muddied the water a bunch. I'm pretty sure Trudeau said he considered a confidence vote. Did he not? I saw the two liberals who were frustrated by it. Lightfoot, not Lightfoot. Lightbound. Lightbound. And I think Nate Erskine-Smith. Not the the folk singer. Said that they wouldn't have voted for it if it wasn't a confidence vote. But then I think higher up said it's not a confidence vote officially but it may have been seen as a confidence vote if it had failed it's canada is great in that the government decides what they view as a confidence vote and they could do it after the fact they just have to go to the governor general and say we don't have the confidence of the house so i have a hard time seeing how just in the general framework that's supposed to govern confidence and that basically governments only exist the house has well, they enjoy the confidence of the House. It, a piece of legislation as significant as the Emergencies Act, it, it is hard to square the invocation of that being rejected with a government holding the confidence yeah, I think of the House. Even if it was not declared a formal confidence motion, it wouldn't speak to the fact that the, the government is no longer able to <laughs> win win crucial votes, even if they're not uh, formally designated as such. So I think it, it operates as if a, it were a confidence motion, even though it is not uh, formally declared as such necessarily. Uh, the Liberals also did yeah, manage be- to secure Elizabeth May's support, although fellow Green Mike Morris went with the opposition to the motion with the conservatives in bloc who also voted on mass more fundamentally i think i the act the fact that we're using the act here i think it's it, there are, the division is in some ways not surprising but it also reflects the fact that this this emergencies act is not necessarily a great fit for what was actually happening in in the country this was the federal government having to to step in to deal with the the failure to perform by two other orders of government right the maintenance of public order within a province is not the federal government's job it is it is a provincial job the provinces tend to delegate it to the city uh, and the city in question is, is utterly incapable of governing itself in in all sorts of ways and uh, including policing itself in this instance and the provincial government just did not seem to be terribly interested in picking up the slack and you can ask whether it really rose to that that formal definition of of an emergency is now spelled out in the act but it also is worth asking did the was there another choice available to to the federal government and and to ottawans given the situation it was clearly an untenable situation that no one else was willing to step in and resolve with the the speed necessary and i wonder if that question would have been teased out heavily in the senate debates and perhaps trudeau was 
conveniently avoiding a defeat for his act in the Senate, because there you have a largely independent-minded body with no electoral concerns, and this is the one chance they could have had to really give some sober second thought to the situation. So maybe he didn't have yeah, the especially because it, it was pretty questionable on whether or not the situation was beyond the ability of a pro- of a single province to resolve, which is the requirement under the Act. Now, Ontario wasn't uh, doing super great on this, and they, they had invoked their own emergencies act before, uh, a couple days earlier before the federal one came in. But it's not clear that if Ontario was just working better as a government, that they wouldn't have been able to handle all of this. And ultimately, none of the powers of the act that none of the stuff that that empowered police and the government to do that they wouldn't have been otherwise able to do was ultimately needed in resolving this. The police just brought in some more police, did a pretty textbook case of crowd control and dispersal. Ontario had already been able to freeze funds through existing laws that they went to court to get uh, court orders for. It is just far from clear that there wasn't the ability of Ontario to handle this, but they just weren't well, doing a good job of it. Just to put it in, a, in another way, the federal government's involvement wasn't required, but somehow it proved necessary for the situation to be resolved. The provincial government could have, should have been able to deal with it. And this is in evidence too, given that the, the powers that ultimately turned the tide were ordinary police powers where people were breaking the law pretty demonstrably and they were informed by the police that they you are breaking the law and if you don't do this from breaking the law we're going to arrest you and then uh, lo and behold those who failed to desist were arrested and and so it's another reason why it probably for the best that the emergencies act has, has been revoked because the next time that happens the police can do the same thing, and they don't need the the Federal Emergencies Act to to resolve that that emergency. And yet, it's pretty clearly not an accident either that the response by the police changed the day, effectively the day that the the Federal Emergencies Act was was announced. We saw the chief of police in Ottawa resign. We saw this a, a new form of leadership involving both the Ontario Provincial Police and the RCMP in, involved, and and we saw this much more determined approach from effectively that moment on. So it's as if the Emergencies Act did little other than put other orders of government on on notice to to get their get their act together, and and so this is arguably not what you want your emergency act to be used for and yet not the emergencies act that we needed deserve but the emergencies act we needed it's just something that should not have happened the way it did and yet it did so we'll have at least three different venues in which to continue having this debate as the act is facing multiple ongoing lawsuits the canadian constitutional foundation and canadian civil liberties association have separate court actions the province of Alberta has a court action going. This comes after Jason Kenney begged the federal government for help and to do something. And then now they're going, no, you shouldn't have done that. <laughs> so if the steel man I can put on Kenney's case is that Coots being an international border is more clearly in the federal jurisdiction than downtown Ottawa is. 
Yeah, I was mostly teasing him for that. The other two venues are there will be Emergencies Act Review Committee. This is something the Act says should be started fairly quickly and in all parliamentary fashions takes about two weeks to get going, which is record pace, but has devolved into partisan bickering over who gets to be the chair, um, which is a fair debate. And then there will also be an inquiry the shape of which is to be determined and seems like will be largely at Trudeau's own design. The review committee is quite interesting because it's envisioned as it exists while the act is in place to provide an ongoing review of the actions being taken by government. And I think they actually have powers to withdraw actions. It's very specifically designed in the act in that it should have at least one member from every party that exit that is recognized. So there will have to be a block, a conservative, an NDP and a liberal at minimum. The Greens don't count because there are too few of them. Um, there will also be some senators. In this case, the liberals have offered to pick one of each of the conservatives, independent Senate group, progressive Senate group and Canadian senator group. But the Liberals controversially said there should be a block, an NDP, and a senator co-chair, and just tried to squeeze the Conservatives out, which made them mad. Understandably. So it's also a bit... That was evolving today. I, I assume somebody's going to have to give way there. It seems a bit uh, churlish to, to block the Conservatives and try to bring everyone else in. It is... Uh, um, Maybe they can try to hold the NDP on side sufficiently to, to pull that through. But the Liberals do have to be a bit careful here. In If it looks like they're trying to run the committee or whitewash the, the work of the committee, this Liberal government is, has long had a dim view of parliamentary committees investigating their work. That is not something that Trudeau and Trudeau's cabinet has historically been friendly to it. We've had a number of experiences of that already. It's quite possible we'll see a series of fireworks happening in and around the, the committee, its work, its composition, as, as long as it exists. And yet its work is important. It's good that we have someone looking into this, even if it does turn into a partisan bun fight. And similarly, the inquiry, Trudeau's initial comments are that it could look at policing and it could look at the influence of funding and disinformation into this, both foreign and domestic which I think are all valuable and important questions, but we also need to ask the questions about what did the government actually do with this act? Whose bank accounts were closed? What did banks do with this power? Because there are reports, both the like more questionable ones from certain MPs of people who may or may not exist, but also just like banks were given carte blanche to close people's accounts if they were suspicious and they were protected from liability. And that's a severe power that if was used, we should know and should know how to ensure is used judiciously and carefully if and when there is a next time. Yeah, as we move to more and more of a cashless society, this becomes a very severe consequence in practical terms. So it does need to be used judiciously and ideally via court order rather than government simply moving quickly or, or Baines acting on their own on this one. Now, the portion of the Emergencies Act that does lay out the requirements for the inquiry does say that the inquiry is to be held into the circumstances that lead to the declaration being issued and the measures being taken during the emergency. So if 
the government follows the law on this one. Both should be aspects of the inquiry. But we have to wait and see just what it looks like, because we have no prior experience with this law to, to draw upon and this particular mixture of mechanisms of, of oversight. One of the one of the nice things about the Emergencies Act is the, the layers of accountability, the need to be accountable to Parliament and to the after the fact the review of actions taken. And the, these are some of the, the signal uh, improvements on this on the, the predecessor act of the War Measures Act. And what happens now will also be potentially setting some additional precedents about what happens when this act is used. And if we want to see its use kept for truly rare emergency situations, I think we want to make sure that the scrutiny that follows is is rigorous and, and governments give it a good long think before they, they invoke this act again. Let's move into our final and our largest segment, war, what is it good for imperialistic territorial expansion it turns out shit hit the fan <laughs> it is I, yeah as you alluded to with that segment title as i'm sure everybody with a uh working internet connection or a- any connection to the outside world so where putin's launched an imperialist war conquest against his neighbor it Ukraine. is something rarely seen in the effectively the post World War II era, the, the modern international order, we don't see uh, independent states waging wars of, of territorial conquest uh, against other independent states. We see civil wars, we see wars of decolonization, we see the occasional proxy conflict. But this is this is there is very little in the way of pretense here. We the, the uh, Russian soldiers initially were called peacekeepers, but even that seems like uh, a mass that was allowed to slip fairly quickly. This is an invasion, and and it is in the IR terms, it is irrational. There is. Very little for either side to be gained here. And obviously, Ukraine is not asking for this conflict. But the costs for Russia are, are potentially going to be extremely high as well. Uh, and yet it is going forward. So it is, we are in waters very seldom explored in the last 70 plus years. That irrationality is the yeah, thing the, that uh, got me the most. Because I, I understood the idea of Russia taking Donetsk and Luhansk, I hope I got those right, the two breakaway regions, and even the way they did it was a little ham-fisted, but it felt like kind of Crimea 2.0, like Russia's going to pick off region by region, influence more, and get Ukraine yeah. that way. Throwing all four, of the military in was just wild. Worst yeah, just, just for context, those three regions have basically been a, a Russian proxy conflict, and Sometimes less than proxy. There's, I think, over the last several years, reports of various Russian units operating in the area. But uh, those conflicts started off at the same time Crimea happened. And the, those uh, are more in keeping with the classic Russian playbook of uh, a, a country that they are looking to keep off balance and to to keep relatively weak and on its periphery, say Georgia, to to find territories within the that that country that are perhaps more sympathetic to Russia, whether there's a large presence of ethnically Russian citizens, and and then de- declaring them to be autonomous breakaway zones and uh, making life difficult for their neighbors. That's the way Russia has, has operated within, in a number of instances. But this is different. This is more like Chechnya. This is this is a wholesale moving in with un- unlimited warfare. And again, it, Ukraine is not 
able to stand up to to Russia indefinitely on its own, but it is also not going to be a small thing. This is a, an enormous mil- in military terms alone. This is a huge risk for Russia. It could be a very costly country to simply to take militarily and then to try to hold as a period in a period of occupation, whether they try to stand up a, a puppet regime or whatever happens after that, whatever the plan is, the Ukrainian uh, citizens are they're not just going to shrug their shoulders, I don't think. This is a, a beginning of a, a terrible, costly uh, situation for Ukraine, but for Russia as well. It is uh, um, not exactly like a head-scratcher. It is clearly down to the uh, the dreams, the ambitions, and the paranoia of essentially one map. And so it moves history at, 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 on occasion, but to see the fate of Europe once again being decided along these terms, or uh, a, a chunk of Europe, I should say, this is taking us back to, in some ways, 1939, where the last time we saw something quite like this. Yeah, so Putin, I think on Monday it was, gave a speech that basically outright rejected the autonomy and statehood of Ukraine, considered illegitimate. And uh, not only that, it expanded that the view that basically any former Russian territory was inherently part of Russia and that Russia was within its rights to reincorporate into its sphere of influence territory. It's not exactly clear what the end arrangement Putin is trying to achieve here, whether that's a a client uh, regime installed in Kiev or... uh, full-scale incorporation back into Russia, but it is very clearly a case where Putin is trying to undo the changes of 1991. If we take him at at his word, and I don't think we should, obviously, but his justification is he's claiming that he wants to see the demilitarization and denazification of Ukraine, and we don't need to get into the latter. But the demilitarization, it it sounds like it sounds a lot like he's pushing for regime change. He wants to remove any semblance of anything that might be Western sympathetic, that might be NATO sympathetic. And I don't even think Zelensky initially was that NATO sympathetic. He didn't run on a platform that was. He actually wanted better relations with Ukraine initially, and then it turned out that would be very bad for his country. Here we are. So it reads to me a bit like I their ideal situation is to take out the major government structures and then put in a puppet regime in the way that Iraq started, although there was a pretense of there are different pretenses there. The US did invade Iraq. Like there have been invasions of sovereign nations. Afghanistan's been invaded multiple times over multiple recent years. And that kind of invasion has happened where the imperial power comes in, takes out the government they don't like, installs something, and it moves forward. And the people of both countries suffer through it, mostly the people being invaded, but also the people who end up in the military of the aggressor. Foreign policy depresses me at the best of times because it really feels like it's the thing that, like we talk about how foreign policy never gets discussed during elections. And it feels so often, especially at moments like this, like the only control, the people controlling foreign policy are just really the like most wealthy elites in society. The people with the most power are just decide playing chess and whatever with 
human lives and it's sad and depressing and yes studying international relations is often highly yeah. depressing you're learning to explain why the world seems to uh, unfold in the uh, continuous set of tragedies that it does but uh, there one of the one of the things i think we'll spend some time thinking about in the aftermath of this conflict however it plays out is uh, uh, just was changing in the world to to have th- this kind of situation unfolding once again. It's just, as you said, there, there are a few examples where we have seen uh, action in, in one country by a neighboring country. It it tends to be something that is is relatively rare, and yet we do see that the world is is uh, has shifted on its, its axis a little bit here. And so that there are a couple explanations we can probably look to why that would be. And and one of the debates I think in foreign policy circles will be why could this happen now if it uh, perhaps would not have been uh, likely uh, say 20 years ago 10 years ago is it the de- declining involvement of the US in, in different parts around the world a move towards a multipolar a world in which the U.S. and uh, and Russia and the EU and and China and and some other more moderate powers each have influence in their own corner of the world, but we don't have a single global uh, policeman in the form of the United States as we did in the 1990s, for better and and for worse. Is that what's changing here? Is there a, a general decline in the norms of conflict resolution that we we saw in evidence, at least in regions like Europe, with exceptions such as the, the Baltics aside? Europe was a relatively peaceful corner of the world for a significant period of time, and perhaps that that is is, is coming to uh, a decline. The norms are changing, or is it is it simply that this is an outlier where someone like Vladimir Putin can spend six months reading history books and come to the conclusion that that Russia should be bigger and and then act on on, on that? And uh, once once Putin is re- removed from the scene, we'll have a, a return to a more peaceable world once more. I don't. Could be all of the all above. of the I think it's all of the above. It it really does seem like that. Yeah, the there are definitely challenges emerging to the uh, rules based international order. It, it is not as clean cut as it used to be. I I, I will take this with a six month remark because I am pretty sure this has been a, a much more long standing thing. Not only is the the Russian aggression against Ukraine going back to eight years to 2014, but Putin's long articulated the view that the collapse of the Soviet Union was the greatest geopolitical tragedy of the modern era, I think is how he phrased it. And also general Russian views around geopolitics is that they their imperative is to push out as far as they can, in large part because there are very few barriers between Europe and and Moscow, the Northern European plain is real easy to drive an army across for right. the most part. And, and as such, they've always tried to, to maintain a, as much as they can. Um, it's remarkable that we're back into a world in which we're, we're measuring the distance between capitals uh, <laughs> as traveled by a tank, where that was not how we tended to think about peace and the the maintenance of peace for the last 20, 30 years, where the, there, there's a certain amount of debate about the role that NATO expansion has played in provoking uh, Russia. And this to, to get to that argument, you do have to, to some extent, simply ignore the sovereignty of, of Ukraine and the, the right to self-determination of the Ukrainian people if they want to tr- apply to join NATO, it ultimately should be up to them and not necessarily up to any other uh, power to prevent them from trying to join an international organization. And 
for a, a period of time yeah, and- that that worked for Russia as well, and 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 now it doesn't. And Russia was not on the cusp of being invaded. It is it is a reflection of again a change a change in the dynamic where the whether it's paranoia or megalomania, there there is something that is non rational driving that that calculation that Russia needs to do something in Ukraine to make itself safe. Again, there are ironies abound here. Russia has set a chunk of its wealth on fire by uh, this this action, both in terms of its own military resources, but also the Russian stock exchange and its ability to act in the broader global community. It is going to be hard for even countries that are dependent on Russia, like Germany, to try to to downplay this. The, the sanctions are coming and they're going to be steep and uh, they may not be as strong as they as those who oppose the action would like them to be. But, but this the, the world is more difficult for Russia today than it was uh, two days ago. On that joining NATO point, uh, I, this is, I think, been a pretty clear vindication of all the countries that willingly sought NATO membership in the last couple decades on why that is important. The Baltic states are smaller than Ukraine by a significant margin, are in a more strategically vulnerable spot, and just altogether the fact that Russian planes are not flying over uh, Tallinn or any of the other capitals there is a sign that the NATO alliance is at, still has a deterrent factor. And I would not be surprised if we see Finland and Sweden and other countries that, particularly in Finland's case, falls under the former Russian territory category that Putin seems uh, pretty anxious to, to reclaim at this point, or at least rhetorically. It wouldn't surprise me if we see those countries move to strengthen ties with NATO and perhaps or likely join NATO. And I think this is going to cause some real reflections on all the European countries around their defense spending and orientation. And a lot of them have let those capabilities lapse over the last 30 years. And they're in a much more vulnerable position than they otherwise would be. To not rehash it excessively, but it it is a chicken and an egg kind of situation. Like, obviously, Putin's this wild card here, and he's the clear aggressor. But do you have the same world if NATO is a different force than it is and has approached the world differently? No, you don't. It's like, in the world we're in, yeah, I can see why everyone would want to join NATO. But if NATO was a smaller force, or if NATO had taken the weird churn in the 90s and early 2000s, when Russia considered joining, we're in a different world looking at a different situation. Russia and NATO would be weird. I don't, I can't imagine that alternate history, but maybe it would have been a more peaceful world. Or maybe NATO would have just become as dysfunctional as the UN Security Council is now. It would have been probably more like the the G8, which was an experiment, and it, it didn't work. There, part a significant portion of foreign policy in the uh, the 1990s and into the 2000s was based on an idea of socialization. Essentially, you take countries that had been previously outside the the Western alliance structure, and notably Russia and China, and you find ways to bring them into that that global order and to help create these links to strengthen the, the ties that bind, whether financial or whether, well, financial for sure, but also the sort of normative behaviors that, that were associated with being members of the the, 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 the the West, quote unquote. And what ended up happening in, in the case of China is we see that there's a very deep economic integration with very little take up of the, the sort of 
more social political norms that, that we're hoped for. So China is still very much focused on its foreign policy and the limited respect for human rights and so on. And in the case of Russia, it seems that for a time it was actually working the way the architects of that kind of strategy had had hoped. We, Yeltsin was a number of things, but he was not an enemy to the West, did not see the West as an enemy to Russia. And so actually quite the opposite, that Russia was a sort of, the West would be a source of potential support in a process of moving towards a more democratic and, and capitalist economy. And Russia was also unfortunately not not a very functional country for much of the 1990s, and and, and Russians turned towards a more strongman type leader in Vladimir Putin. And, and Putin came with this uh, deep-seated mistrust of the West and acted accordingly. And we had that estrangement ever since. And so now the G8 is no longer a thing. Essentially, <laughs> Russia was disinvited from all the parties. And and it, I suspect much the same thing of what would have happened with NATO. But it really comes down to the, the failure of that, that decade to help Russia establish a, a functioning economy that was actually equitable and, and provided safety. Well, and there was also the rise of the oligarch class in Russia and much of Eastern Europe, which has led, I was looking up earlier, and it's a sad irony that on Transparency International's Corruption Index, Ukraine is one spot below Russia in the 2021 rankings. Now they, I guess now they can be the same very bad ranking. This just gets back to my depression point. Let's talk about the present though. Sanctions, how do we, as the West, stop the war from expanding. I don't like war. I don't think any of us do or want to see it. So how do we apply pressure without directly engaging troops in Ukraine, which does not seem to be the plan for NATO because Ukraine's not a NATO country, so we don't have to. And starting a well, war yeah, with no Russia seems suicidal, given they have nukes. Yeah. So that, that's the thing is during the Cold War, both sides made a lot of efforts that their troops were not going to be involved in the same conflicts as the other troops, and everything happened via proxies. And that model seems to be being followed here, where uh, there will be support. There has been a fair bit of support to Ukraine in terms of material, intelligence, weapons. The the javelins that have been supplied from all reports have seemed to be getting a fair bit of use right now, but they're is no desire among any NATO leader to have this expand to include NATO as well, and nor should it, because the the nuclear factor makes that makes the tail risk on that very bad. But in terms of responses, there's a couple of them. There's there's the continue to support Ukraine, which by all accounts seems to be happening on this. The US intelligence has done a very good job of predicting Russia's actions in the lead up to this and through this. And I believe they're doing a fair bit of intelligence sharing with Ukraine. There's sanctions, which Canada announced a batch earlier today, as well as a few earlier in the week on this, mostly targeting Russian businesses, Russian elite and their families, as well as members in senior government positions on there, there's talk among the various EU and NATO members about how tough to make these sanctions, and there, there seems to be some disagreement about whether or not to, to cut off Russia's access to the SWIFT international payment system. But basically, the sanctions seem to be both aimed at important Russian individuals as well as the general economy 
and ability to do business with the rest of the world. We, for example, cancelled all export permits and are not and are revoking any of the ones previously issued. We are going to be uh, trying to uh, encourage one another to make the sanctions as as painful as possible. But one of the reasons why that is so difficult is, is is the nature of sanctions. To hurt another country, you have to hurt yourself. Effectively, you have to deny yourself the the business opportunity in order to deny the the target of the sanctions the the business opportunity. And so, it's a real coordination problem, <laughs> particularly when countries such as as Germany have been quite dependent on Russia for things like energy supplies, which is crucial to to the the German economy. And so, it 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 is a, a real dance. And we see Europe is obviously at the center of this. It is uh, the major source uh, uh, destination for all kinds of Russian exports, notably energy, but not just that. And it is a source of, of materials for the Russian economy as well. And so you need the community of, of states to, to come together to make the sanctions work, to make them really bite. And China is going to be obviously a, a crucial factor in that as well. If, if the entire world shuts Russia off, that will matter. But if there is still a trade conduit with China maintain, then it's going to be less effective. And so I think a great deal of effort will have to be expanded to ensure that the sanctions are as comprehensive and as universally applied as possible. And for as long as possible, and that's going to cost everyone a certain amount. Yeah, though I will note, Russia's GDP is roughly the same size as Canada. So, with us, the U.S., Britain, all of that, the the economic costs would definitely be disproportional towards them compared to us. We have a lot more economic room to absorb any of those costs. But it's not equal across Western yeah. nations, and as Stuart points out, with Russia. But I think the big challenge here is what we've seen is there have been rounds of sanctions against Russia over the years. And they seem to bounce off Putin like he's rubber, right? He doesn't care if his people suffer. He can use that actually in propaganda to blame the West for trying to hurt the Russian cause. Now, what gives me some hope are the widespread protests that are being reported in Russia. And the, there's obviously a crackdown on that. CBC says 1,700 people or more have been detained as Russian people are protesting this invasion. Um, so I am, you know, optimistic and I like seeing these sanctions targeting the oligarchs, targeting the main banks. The SWIFT international transfer system, I've used that several times when I've been transfer lived internationally and you use that to transfer money internationally. I think that will largely hit the wealthiest, but that will affect anyone who has family back in Russia. So that I can see why there is some consternation around that. This is a pretty egregious example. So we situation. So we need some way to get their attention and really, frankly, I guess, just destabilize the Russian power structures such that there is a pushback against Putin, even internally, even if we can't get him to stop you get those around him to go, you know what, enough's enough. You had your fun. Go home. Yeah, and seizing the assets held in Western countries would be do quite a bit to personally hurt those who have the biggest hand in this on that. The Germans' decision to shut down their uh, nuclear plants pr probably goes on the list of one of the biggest strategic blunders of the past decade for any NATO country. Because yeah. that's... Uh, yeah, we do see countries they grapple with these, these normative questions, and it in Germany is 
proof that if you were serious about decarbonization, you were going to have to embrace another form of energy. If you are not willing to embrace, say, nuclear energy to meet your needs, then it's going to be very hard to decarbonize. And failure to decarbonize is, I've become fond of saying, uh, decarbonization is a strategic imperative. So if you are vulnerable to somebody else's oil exports or lack of access to those oil exports, then you are strategically vulnerable. And we see this again and again. The United States tried to respond to that by developing its domestic capacity through things like fracking. But the longer term option is not to replace the supply. It is to simply wean an economy off off energy, non-renewable energy supplies. And the fact that Germany is, is still so dependent on, on Russian natural gas is a huge problem for the country and, and currently for the world or for the region, at least. And it is It is a strategic failure, just as you say. And yet, it is one that is born out of German politics. It's not a strategic decision. It is a compromise based on the, the demands of the population. And, and how do they balance the risks of climate change against the risks of nuclear, the, the possibilities of nuclear fallout versus the fallout from an actual war over a, over Chernobyl? Also bringing a potential for nuclear fallout. It is, again, international relations is extremely Or if you're possible. Jason Kenney, you can just use it as a talking point why people should, quote, choose Alberta oil, not dictator oil. Yeah, so I think a general issue in among Western leaders overall is the downplaying of strategic and geopolitical concerns when making uh, domestic decisions around stuff like fuel, fossil fuel development, defense spending, and all that. And I think we're probably due for a big change in how leaders approach that stuff. And I think we are going to see more and more of that coming through. The other category of responses is what type of military deployments and defense posture does this NATO take up in response to this? And Canada earlier this week had announced that since the 460 CF personnel were deploying to Latvia along with the HMCS Halifax, and today they announced there was an additional 3,400 military troops being placed on standby for further deployments. The U.S. has announced they're moving more forces into Eastern Europe. And I also saw the Dutch had deployed a couple of F-35s to Eastern Europe. And I imagine other NATO partners who I've not been reading their news are making similar arrangements on that. But yeah, one of the actions that everyone is taking is strengthening the positions of the NATO countries that are, are most threatened by their proximity to Russia, which I generally think is a, a good move, particularly because there has always been lingering questions about the defensibility of the Baltic countries and whether or not NATO would actually go to war to defend those and for deploying military assets there and strengthening their defense position, I think sends the right signal that no we we are very serious about this and, and don't mess with don't try and expand this conflict to to include the small nato countries on the baltics we are seeing a display of a number of international relations theory in, in real time when is that countries will look to set up uh, deterrence. So the fact that Canada sends four was it 450 460 troops to to Latvia is not 
we're not going to be able to defend Latvia with 460 troops, but we are providing something of a deterrent. It is a guarantee that uh, we are going to be part of this conflict with boots on the ground. And if there were an invasion of Latvia, Canada would be maintaining its support for that country as a member of uh, a relatively recent uh, joined member of NATO more more recently anyways and so we're seeing that action uh, the beefing up of the commitment to the, the the NATO frontier we're also seeing a form of the security dilemma play out and this is the idea that countries will take actions to try to make themselves uh, seem safer and in so doing trigger a response from other countries to that effectively make that country less safe so the the classic example is that uh, one country arming itself to try to make itself safer will make itself seem more threatening to its neighbors and its neighbors will all arm themselves and then you very quickly find yourself in an arms race whether it's world war one battleships or uh, cold war nuclear armaments we see that that same logic play out again and again in this case russia has been the the pretext here for invasion of ukraine is that nato talking to ukraine about becoming a member was a threat to russia and so russia needed to do something to maintain its security but in so doing it is clearly leading to it, all the other countries in in europe members of, of nato to beef up their presence and then very clearly to make russia to increase the the threatening posture of, of nato in those countries and so russia by its own action has made itself less safe and so again international relations is is full of examples of that, where states will do something and produce the opposite of the intended effect. And and Russia is in the midst of of doing that to itself. Yeah. And this is absolutely a reminder that while we all want the international rules-based order to persist, it doesn't, there's no guarantee that it it will in the future, we'll be able to hold. And it it is important for countries to maintain the ability to adequately defend themselves. And it's something that Canada's often lost sight of and this should probably spur a renewed interest in ensuring our military has the adequate equipment it needs uh, to be able to protect Canada and and well as uh, support our our NATO allies and 12 years ago was when the uh, the government announced they were going to be uh, buying new fighters the F-35 specifically and yet here we are 12 years later and we don't even have a signed contract or a model selected for that. And the long piece of the the 90s onward is coming to an end and would be prudent for us to start adjusting our defense policy accordingly. These are debates we're going to keep having undoubtedly. Situation still evolving. I don't even know it's where things are going to be in the morning. Yeah, so we've recorded this basically between 9 o'clock and 10 o'clock on Thursday Thursday night, the, the 24th. This may be out of date by the time it comes out the next morning or when you're listening to it in the future. Yeah, maybe Russia surrendered due to some magical like uh, mutiny of all its forces. We could only hope. Stuart, thank you for taking your time this evening. Hope things are well with you. Thanks very much. It's always a pleasure. And that has been Playtoast. Find links to everything we talked about at playtoast.ca. Support the show and get access to our Slack channel at patreon.com slash playtoast. Our intro music credit is Beautiful British Columbia by Serge Plotnikoff. Playtoast is a production of Legend Boot Media, and editing services are provided by CHLY 101.7 FM in Nanaimo. 
wash your hands and stay home. Thanks for listening.